We all make mistakes, decisions that we regret, things we'd like to do over, like not buying Bitcoin when you first heard about it at $1. We all carry around different stresses, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. At times, therapy has helped me and my loved ones in many ways. Therapy isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. With the right guide, you can discover effective strategies to minimize distractions and truly connect with your needs, setting the stage for a more balanced life. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched up with a life therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge take a moment visit betterhelp.com gold today to get 10% off your first month that's betterhelp h-e-l-p.com slash gold I gotta get something uh, out of the way first uh, you know I, a lot of people have been waiting a long time for this but you know and I thought I would never actually you know do this I mean I'm it's you know it, it really is a major uh, epiphany for me to have to admit that I was wrong for all these years, but I finally seen the light. You guys, I mean, all these text messages and emails, they, they finally worked because I seen the light and I am buying Bitcoin gold. Forget about gold. You know, it's, it's, it, you're right. It's old school. I mean, it's too clunky. It's too heavy. You know, I, I want something with real value for the digital age. I, I finally, you know, I was stuck in this mind frame, you know, because I'm an, I'm an old guy, you know, I'm set in my ways, you know, and I, I just couldn't, you know, get with this new technology. It just took a long time for it to really sink in, you know. I mean, some of you guys, you got it right away, but, you know, it just took a long time. You know, now I'm 60 years old. And, you know, so my brain doesn't work quite as rapidly as your 20-year-olds, right? So you were able to figure this out, you know, quickly. But it just took me some time. I had to watch Bitcoin get all the way up, you know, to, uh, what, 70,000. Although it's pullback right now, it's, uh, what, 20, 28,000, something like that. But, you know, I'm in. I'm buying. You guys got me. So selling my gold. And I'm recommending that everybody who follows me do the same thing. Anyway. April Fool, if you believe that. Now, I know somebody is going to try to take what I just said as my April Fool joke, and they're going to cut it, and they're going to put it up on the Internet as if it wasn't a joke, because that's how you Bitcoin guys operate. Uh, you know, you like to take things out of context and misrepresent stuff. And so, yeah, I mean, you'd have to be a real fool to believe that I would be foolish enough to, to buy Bitcoin. Now, yeah, Bitcoin had a great quarter, and I'm going to get to that, but enjoy it while you can, because it's not going to be repeated. Because the real fools this April Fool Day were the people who were buying all these tech stocks during the first quarter, including cryptocurrency, Bitcoin, all this risk stuff got bid up in the first quarter of 2023. You know, a lot of people got caught off guard by the strength that we had in risk assets in the first quarter, right? I mean, the NASDAQ, in fact, the NASDAQ 
had its best quarter since the second quarter of 2020. It was up 17%, I believe, on the quarter. And the reason that the NASDAQ did so well back in the second quarter of 2020, that's when the Fed you know, went back to QE. That's when they slashed interest rates back to zero because of COVID. Now, the market sold off early on when COVID first got started. But once the Fed went to zero and launched QE, you know, infinity for QE4, that caused the NASDAQ to sharp back, I mean, to snap back very sharply. And so the you have to go back then to find a quarter uh, where the NASDAQ was as strong as it was in the first quarter of uh, this year. Now, of course, the NASDAQ went way down. It was down about 30% for 2022. So big move down. It's not that crazy that we had a snapback. Plus, I think a lot of people were probably short a lot of these tech stocks going into the year. Certainly people who were short these stocks made a lot of money on those shorts in 2022. And so a lot of them were probably still there in 2023. And the expectation, of course, was that the Fed would keep hiking rates. And in fact, it did. We had 75 basis points of rate hikes during the first quarter of 2023. So that is what the markets had expected. And all that, of course, had been bad for tech stocks. But the reason we got the sharp turnaround is because of the economic events and most particularly the onset of the 2023 financial crisis that really changed the mindset. And I think even prior to the onset of this financial crisis, you were starting to see a bid in the tech stocks based on the idea that the tightening cycle was coming to an end. Yes, maybe the Fed was gonna ratchet up rates a couple more times, but it didn't matter because the lion's share of the work had been done and we were now on the cusp of another easing cycle. The Fed was soon gonna be cutting rates and of course, quantitative tightening would eventually give way to another round of quantitative easing. And so investors wanted to get ahead of that. Remember, the markets look forward. So they're looking beyond the last few rate hikes till to the first rate cuts. And not just the first rate cuts, but the many, many rate cuts that are likely to follow, as well as the return to quantitative easing. And I think that is what is responsible for the big rise in the NASDAQ. And if you look at what happened with the Dow, for example, the Dow was barely positive. In fact, it may have been negative up until the last day of the quarter because the Dow was up 400 points on Friday and the Dow only gained 0.4% for the entire quarter. So I think all of that gain was attributable to Friday's rise. So, but for that rise, it, the Dow might've had a negative quarter. But the S&P 500 was up about 7%. And what powered the S&P was the tech stocks that are large components of the S&P. Certainly other sectors of the S&P, like the financials, did extremely uh, bad, right? The financials got clobbered, especially at the latter part of the quarter. But the tech stocks were strong enough that it, it outdid the damage done by the financials. But if you look at, let's say, the Russell 2000, 
which doesn't have nearly as much tech as the S&P or the NASDAQ, obviously, that index was only up 2.3%. So not nearly as big a bounce. Now, I didn't participate as an investor. I didn't own uh, much of these tech stocks. Actually, I did own some of the, uh, the Asian stocks. I had some tech stocks uh, in Asia. Some of them are in our funds. So we, you know, we caught a bit of the tech rally, but we're way underweight tech in general. But where we were able to participate was in the gold stocks because the gold stocks had a decent quarter, not a spectacular quarter, quarter but they had a decent quarter. The GDX was up 13% on the quarter. And the juniors actually didn't even do as well. They were up about 10% on the quarter. Now, for those of you who are shareholders of the Euro Pacific Gold Fund, we actually did a little bit better during the quarter than both of those index. The Euro Pacific Gold Fund was up 14.2% during the first quarter. So not nearly as much as the NASDAQ, although actually not that far behind. 17% versus 14%, so almost as good as the NASDAQ, but a lot better than the S&P, and certainly even bet more better than the, uh, the Russell 2000 or the Dow. And what I think should be going on right now is more people who are buying these tech stocks should actually be buying gold stocks instead, because I think the gold stocks are the new tech stocks for this new easing cycle. The people who are buying tech stocks all quarter were correct in their judgment that we were coming to the end of the tightening cycle, because we were. And they were correct to anticipate that there would be an easing, which there already has been. I mean, the Fed has already acknowledged that it's probably not going to hike much, if at all. And whether they want to admit it or not, they're back to quantitative easing. Although. Uh, this week, on, on Thursday, when they reported the balance sheet, it actually shrank again by about $25 billion. So we didn't have a third week in a row of an expansion. There was a little bit of a, of a contraction. But I think that is the exception, not the rule. I think going forward, we're going to see the balance sheet continue to expand. Every once in a while, there may be a weekly contraction. But the direction now for the balance sheet is up. But I think investors are wrong in thinking that this easing cycle is going to be good for tech stocks. I think they've got it wrong. The last easing cycle was great for tech stocks, but I don't think that we're going to repeat that. I think this time around, it's going to be gold stocks. And in fact, if you go back to the 2000 a bubble that popped and you know NASDAQ was down 80%, mostly because of those tech stocks, the tech stocks rebounded from 2002 to 2008 when we had the financial crisis. But the gold stocks did much better during that easing cycle because the, you know, the Fed moved rates down to 1% and then kept them there for a while and then gradually normalized. But during that entire cycle, the gold stocks actually did much better than the tech stocks. So I think the same thing is going to happen this time. It's not going to be the people in tech stocks are going to make money again like they did uh, from 2009-ish all the way through 2021 or whenever that, that, that bubble finally peaked. It's not going to be the same, nor is it going to be the crazy days of the COVID lockdowns where all these tech stocks you know, went, went ballistic. 
Because what I think investors don't get is that inflation is the wild card because it's not going back down. The last easing cycle was good for tech stocks because inflation was below 2%, at least the inflation that anybody admitted to, right? The Fed was below 2%. And so in that environment, it was able to get away with quantitative easing, low interest rates, and, and the dollar was strong during that time period. And so I think this favored the tech stocks. But I don't think this easing cycle is going to look anything like that. Because what I think is going to happen this time is inflation is already well above 2%. And you know we got some more inflation data on Friday. We got the personal consumption expenditure uh, index. And contained within that number, there was a better than expected reading on inflation, but just barely. The core PCE, which is the least accurate and therefore the Fed's favorite way to measure inflation because it understates it the most, it was supposed to go up by 0.4 on the month and it went up by 0.3. I mean, big deal because 0.3 annualized is still way above uh, the Fed's 2% uh, level. I think it's right now, if it annualizes out, I think year over year, we're at 4.6% rise in the core PCE. You know, the core, right? That strips out uh, food and energy, right? Which was even higher. But even if you strip that stuff out and you go down to the core, you're still at 4.6% year over year. Yes, that was slightly better than the 4.7% that they were looking for, but it's nowhere near the 2%. But what's more significant about that is that that's where the year over year core PCE is when the Fed has stopped the inflation fight. It is no longer hiking rates, but more importantly than the rate hikes, is it's back to quantitative easing. The Fed is creating inflation. The Fed is printing money all over again, and that just fuels the inflation fire. So I think we're, we're kind of at trough inflation now. Maybe it gets a little bit lower, but we're not gonna get anywhere near two, and then we're just going to pick up momentum and head for new highs. And that is going to create a completely different environment for tech stocks and for gold stocks. Let's talk finance. Wouldn't it be convenient to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one spot? Yahoo Finance does just that. It consolidates your portfolio views and offers expert analysis, making it easier to manage your investments. Let's not beat around the bush. You want to grow your portfolio, fight inflation, pay off debts, and achieve financial freedom. Yahoo Finance provides the news, data, and tools to make that happen. You may think you've covered all the bases, savings, researching, and investing smartly. But to truly excel, you need Yahoo Finance in your corner. A holistic perspective is crucial for success, and Yahoo Finance ensures you have it. With a massive community of over 90 million users monthly, Yahoo Finance is here to guide you on your path to financial success. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Look at the ARK Innovation ETF. That was up 29%. Remember, that was beaten down the most, and so it had an even bigger rebound as investors are, again, making the wrong assumption that this easing cycle is going to be a carbon copy of the last one. And so they want to buy the, you know, the crappiest type names, the most speculative names, 
uh, like the ones that are in that fund. In fact, getting to crappy speculative names, Bitcoin, as I alluded to earlier in my April Fool's joke, was up about 70% on the quarter. And I know all the Bitcoin guys are just, you know, excited about this and bragging about how this is the top performing asset. In fact, the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust did even better. It was up 120% on the quarter. So the discount narrowed as some more people are betting, I guess, that maybe they might be able to get this thing to be an ETF and they'll be able to cash out at NAV or at something like that. But so the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, which was down more than Bitcoin in 2022, has rebounded more than Bitcoin in uh, 2023. And, you know, the Bitcoin story is a little bit different because not only is it rising with the other highly speculative risk on tech names, but a lot of people in the Bitcoin community are reacting to this Fed pivot. Because part of the rationale for buying Bitcoin was similar to my rationale for wanting to buy gold or wanting to buy gold stocks, which was that I knew that eventually the Fed was going to pivot because I knew that its feigned inflation fight would create a financial crisis. And that the minute that financial crisis reared its head, the Fed would be forced to pivot in its inflation fight because it would become more concerned over the impending financial crisis. And so that is where we are. And so we've now got the unofficial pivot. I mean, the reason I'm saying it's unofficial is because the Fed hasn't cut rates. And even though it's done quantitative easing, it's kind of denying that it's doing it. And it's come up with these BS excuses why what it's doing is not quantitative easing, even though it's doing exactly what it was doing when it was admitting to doing quantitative easing. But you have to read between the lines. It's not that hard to do that, right? Because, you know, there's a lot there and the the lines are pretty wide. But you have to read between them and recognize that the Fed has already pivoted. I mean, you can't wait for an engraved invitation because by the time that happens, I mean, you know, the prices of gold and things like that are going to be much, much higher, which is why I've been encouraging people to buy. By the way, gold itself was up about and $40 $40 an ounce on the quarter. We didn't close the quarter above 2000. We we poked above it a couple of times. We closed at $1970 an ounce. So the markets are giving you an opportunity to buy gold below 2000. I don't know how much longer that opportunity is going to be there, but I do expect to see a big move up in the price of gold, which is why I, you know, really have been suggesting very strongly that those of you who have been on the fence regarding their purchases, you know, get off the fence and, and, and make your purchase, contact uh, Shift Gold uh, and do that. Or, you know, talk to the reps at Europe Pacific Asset Management about getting involved in the mining stocks through a separately managed account through my, uh, through my gold fund. And if you own Bitcoin and you didn't sell last year, sell now. You've got this great rally in Bitcoin, I mean, we're not quite back to 30,000, but maybe we're as close as we're going to get. We'll see. I mean, it's hard to know exactly when this thing is going to run out of steam. Uh, maybe it's doing it now, but, you know, it's up around 28,000. There is a lot more optimism now in Bitcoin. I've noticed that. I think because that the Fed has gone back to QE, 
because everybody realizes that they're going to be cutting rates because we're embarking on a financial crisis. And the Bitcoin people think this is it. This is the moment we've been waiting for, right? No, it's the moment I've been waiting for. <laughs> They've been waiting for it too, but they're betting on the wrong horse because what this moment is going to do is expose the Fed. It's going to destroy the dollar and it's going to result in more people moving into gold as an alternative to the dollar. They're not going to be moving into Bitcoin. People think they will, but they're wrong. But because other people still think that's going to happen, you've got this rally. So people who are in Bitcoin, you have an opportunity now to, to, to change horses and actually get on the winner and get off of this horse. I know, yes, uh, uh, Tudor Jones said it was the fastest horse in the race, but I don't think it's in the race anymore. I think it's headed to the glue factory. So you got to get on the gold horse. If you want a faster horse, then try silver. I know high host silver that might uh, that might be it. I think that was that was the Long Rangers horse, right? Silver. So uh, I think silver could be the one you want to ride in this uh, inflationary environment. But anyway, getting back to the numbers. So part of what was going on that was driving the moves uh, was a the dollar, which stopped going up. Remember, the dollar had been strong. The dollar was down on the quarter. It didn't collapse on the quarter, but it dropped. The dollar index ended last year at 103 and a half, and it ended the quarter at 102.60. So despite three rate hikes or two rate hikes, 50, 75 basis points, we had a 50 and a 25, right? I think, so despite those rate hikes, the dollar went down. So the dollar didn't go up with the rate hikes, it went down. And now that the Fed is done hiking, well now the dollar can really go down. But the big move, was in the bond market. This was what really helps explain the enthusiasm for tech stocks. And that is the rise in bond prices, the drop in yields on the longer maturity debt and the inversion of the yield curve. So the yield for the 30 year treasury on the quarter went from 4% to 3.7%. On the 10 year, we went from 3.9 to 3.5. And the five-year went from 4% to 3.6. So despite the fact that the Fed hiked interest rates by 75 basis points, long-term yields went down. And even though the Fed funds rate is now 5%, you're only getting 3.7% on a 30-year treasury, 3.5 on a 10 and 3.6 on a five. So the markets are baking in not only substantial rate cuts, and in fact, the rate cuts are going to start according to the market, but over the summer, if you look at the yield on a one-year treasury bill, they imply that the Fed is going to be cutting rates, I think, by the summer. So not only have they finished hiking, but they're about to start cutting, but also inherent in the assumption that the Fed can cut rates is that when the Fed cuts rates, inflation is going to keep on falling. It's not. Inflation is going to keep on rising, I think, regardless of what the Fed does with rates, because the inflation that we are dealing with right now, the Fed was creating it for 12 years. We're only now at the cusp of the problem manifesting itself. There was a much longer lag for many, many reasons that I've gone over on other podcasts, but we finally caught up with the inflation that was unleashed over a decade ago. And so 
as this money now continues to make its way through the economy, it is going to bid up prices. But I think what's going to be even more uh, important is going to be the drop in the value of the U.S. dollar. In fact, again, I think it was yesterday, more news on a deal between Brazil and China. And China is Brazil's largest trading partner. But now these two nations are going to be trading with one another and invoicing and settling their transactions in their own currencies, whereas they used to use the U.S. dollar. So just another nail in that coffin. You can see this going on now, uh, flashing red lights that the world is de-dollarizing. And you know, the main reason that when the Fed went to QE the first time in 2009, 2010, the, the reason the dollar didn't immediately drop was because the world's central banks were loading up on dollars. They were buying all these dollars. They were buying all these treasuries. Remember, we called it the currency war because they didn't want their currencies to go up against the dollar. Well, that is completely different now. They would love to see their currencies go up against the dollar. They, they want out of the dollar. And, and so as the Fed reembarks on this new easing cycle, more QE, which is just inflation, as they start creating inflation, instead of trying to put out the fire, they're throwing more wood on the fire, and they're no longer uh, hiking rates. And I, by the way, I don't think we're going to go back down to zero. I don't think the Fed is going to be able to do that, given how high inflation is going to get in the months and years ahead. That doesn't mean they're not going to try. They're not going to cut rates somewhat. But I don't think there's going to be a situation like COVID where the Fed is allowed to bring them all the way down to zero. I don't even think they'll get down to 1%, which is where they were after the dot-com bubble. So the Fed doesn't have the ability to provide that much stimulus to the markets, uh, which is one of the reasons that tech stocks did so well now as they did then, because you've got inflation that is an intervening factor that wasn't a factor then. But I think the enormity of the budget deficits and the ongoing financial crisis in the banking sector, which is going to spill over beyond the banks. First of all, it's not just Silicon Valley Bank or Signature Bank. It's all the banks that have these problems. But it's not just the banks that are going to be impacted by higher rates. Even if the Fed cuts rates a little bit from where they still are, they're still much higher than they were when a lot of debt was incurred. And all that debt is going to be rolled over. So it's not just the banks that are in a predicament. And again, it's not just private banks, the Federal Reserve, you know, its balance sheet is way underwater. It's losing a lot of money. It's having to send those bills to the Treasury. But corporate America, you know, all the, you know, a lot of state governments and municipalities, they took on a lot of debt. Some of that debt is shorter in term. It's going to mature, right? Everybody has been living off of cheap money. And that cheap money has enabled debtors to take on even more debt. But the problem is, as the cost of that debt rises, they can't afford to service it, let alone repay it. And that's going to happen in corporate America. That's going to happen uh, for re individuals who took on too much debt. It's 12 years that debtors have been given this huge subsidy in the form of these artificially low rates. And even though they're still low, they're not as low as they were. And that's going to create a big problem. Like I've said with the heroin analogy, if you get a big heroin addiction, 
and then you still take heroin, but it's not enough. You know, you're, you were used to such a large quantity. Your body needs that. Even if you get a little bit of heroin, if it's not what you need, you can still have withdrawal, even though you're still on the drug. And that's basically what's going to be happening. Now, ultimately, real interest rates are going to be even lower than they were before because inflation is going to be even higher. But the problem is going to be the ability to just pay the nominal rates. Because even if the real rates are going down, if you don't have the money to cover the increasing nominal rates, then it doesn't even matter. But what it's going to, well, what's going to matter, though, is going to be the impact on prices. Because ultimately, falling real interest rates are going to be bearish for the dollar, and that's going to put more upward pressure on prices. So it's the reverse of what happened during the last easing cycle, where the Fed was able to print a lot of money with QE, yet the dollar gained value on foreign markets relative to other currencies. And, and so even though we were debasing the dollar, the dollar was gaining relative to other currencies, and that was maintaining its international purchasing power, and that was keeping down the cost of a lot of our imports. And so we really weren't having to deal with the full consequences of the inflation because the strengthening dollar, despite that inflation, was offsetting it. But now it's going to be the reverse. We're going to have a weakening dollar. It's going to be like 2002 to 2008. During that time frame, the dollar went way down. The dollar index went from 120 down to 70. That's when gold went from 300 to 1,000. That's when gold stocks did much better than tech stocks. That's the environment that I think we're in, except on a bigger scale, because the U.S. is starting this cycle in much worse financial shape than it was in 2000. We had a much bigger bubble. The Fed has a much bigger balance sheet. There's been much more damage done to the underlying structure of the economy. And, 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 and so now I think the moves in the dollar in gold are going to be much bigger. And the other main difference is going to be the end game. Because paradoxically, the dollar's decline and gold's rally came to an end in 2008 with the financial crisis. And that paradoxically caused the oversold dollar to bounce and it caused investors to take profits in gold. This time, I don't think that's going to happen because this crisis is going to be punctuated by a dollar crisis, by a sovereign debt crisis. And when that happens, nobody is going to take refuge in the dollar when they're trying to get out of the dollar. And no one is going to take refuge in U.S. Treasuries if they want to get out of the dollar because U.S. Treasuries are denominated in dollars. So a dollar crisis will look much different than a financial crisis, and the impact will be far different in the financial markets, in the foreign exchange, in precious metals. And all this, I think, is happening. I think it's going to be happening at an accelerated pace. So a lot of people, you know, they did okay in Q1. They made some money in these tech stocks. You know, they made money even in bonds rallied a bit. But don't be lulled into a false sense of security. If you stay on that path, you are not going to make money. In fact, you could lose a tremendous amount of money. What's even worse, it's not just losing money, it's losing purchasing power. Because even if you don't lose your money, your money is going to lose its purchasing power. So what you got to do is, again, read between the lines and the writing on the wall and change your portfolio. You know, foreign stocks, again, beat the U.S. stock market. They didn't beat the NASDAQ, but, you know, they beat the Dow, beat the S&P. Uh, so the foreign markets are already doing better. But I think that they'll do even better 
in the later quarters of the year, particularly in the back half of the year relative to the U.S. market, when the dollar really starts to fall, and that gives a, a big tailwind to the non-dollar portfolio, and in particular, the gold and precious metals. I want to finish up today's podcast, though. I want to talk a little bit about politics, because on Friday, we also found out that a grand jury uh, in, in New York indicted former President Donald Trump, who is a current candidate for the presidency. And so now he's been indicted. He hasn't been arraigned yet. And we haven't actually seen the indictment because they haven't unsealed it. But we know that the indictment relates to violations of campaign finance laws. And it has something to do with $120,000 or $130,000 payment that was made to Stormy Daniels uh, to keep her mouth shut. Remember, Stormy was out there talking about some affair that she allegedly had uh, with Donald Trump. And Donald Trump didn't want her talking about it anymore. Uh, maybe it was true. Maybe it wasn't. I don't know. But he paid her to be quiet, which is pretty common. You know, a lot of people enter into these confidentiality agreements where you pay somebody money to keep their mouth shut and they don't talk about something. I mean, this happens. I mean, I've never been involved in something like this, but I know that that it happens, certainly with people that have a, you know, are a celebrity or people know who they are. It's very easy for somebody to come out and make an accusation. Maybe it's true. Maybe it's false. Uh, but sometimes the easiest thing you can do is pay the person to be quiet uh, because, you know, maybe that's the best way to deal with it, especially if you're wealthy. I mean, people talk about, oh, this is one hundred twenty thousand dollars. That's a lot of money. Not to Donald Trump. Right. That's not not a lot of money. So it was probably worth uh, what he paid. Now, what they're trying to claim, though, is because he was a candidate for president at the time that this payment constitutes a campaign donation. And he should have reported it, which to me seems ridiculous, because how do you report it? Number one, because if the purpose of the 120,000 is so Stormy Daniels doesn't make these allegations, but you have to report it on something that's disclosed to the public. If you report that you paid Stormy Daniels $120,000 to not say anything, you've just destroyed the entire value of what you were buying for the $120,000. So it would actually make it impossible if you had to report it as a campaign contribution, because then why even do it? Because the fact that you made the payment would, would be news in and of itself, and you basically would look guilty uh, because, because you paid. So I don't even see how he could have reported it, uh, e even if he thought it was a campaign donation, which he clearly did not, because he has a right to do that as a private citizen. Just because he's running for president doesn't mean you can't enter into a confidentiality agreement with somebody. I mean, you could do that for personal reasons. The guy's a married man. Uh, the guy's got kids. He doesn't want this person talking about something that may or may not have happened. He may have made that payment even if he wasn't running for president. But there certainly were valid reasons for Donald Trump to believe that that didn't constitute a campaign uh, contribution that should have been disclosed. And in fact, the federal uh, uh, you know, campaign finance people they knew about it for years. They, they never filed any charges. Now you got this ridiculous uh, DA in, in, in Manhattan coming out and saying, oh, he violated campaign finance law. Well, well, why didn't the federal government say something about it? Because it's a federal law. It's not a state law. If he violated these federal election laws, why didn't the federal government do anything about it? I mean, I know firsthand uh, about this because 
I was fined and I paid a $10,000 fine. I think it was $10,000. May have been 20. I don't I don't know for sure, but I I think it was 10. But I I got fined for violating campaign finance laws. Nobody indicted me. I didn't face criminal charges. I paid a fine. It's civil. So even if Donald Trump should have reported this $120,000 payment, and I don't think he should have. I think he was right not to do it. But even if I'm wrong, right, what the hell do I know, right? I'm not a career politician. That's one of the reasons I don't like campaign finance laws. It was the worst part about my Senate campaign was filing these, uh, these, these campaign finance laws. They are written by career politicians to prevent guys like me from running for office, right? They make it harder for people to raise money uh, when they're not a career politician, and especially when you're a self-funder, right? I, I, you know, I didn't fund all of my campaign myself. I, I did about a third of it. I know uh, Donald Trump, uh, you know, spent a lot of money of his own money on his campaign. And these finance campaign finance laws really make it difficult, but they also make it impossible if you have wealthy friends for them to contribute because of all these limits. I mean, I don't think there should even be these campaign finance laws. Personally, I think they're unconstitutional. And I, I think we just get rid of them, you know, uh, and just, you know, I, I think they do more harm than good. I think they protect the entrenched political class. And it's one of the reasons that there's no turnover. They, they, they've stacked the deck. They've rigged it against challengers, especially non-career politicians who just want to run like I did. You know, these campaign finance laws are very difficult. And, of course, they're hard to understand, which is why I inadvertently violated them. And, you know, I can't even remember what exactly I did to get this $10,000 fine. But but I got it and I paid it. Um, but, you know, it was just an honest mistake. But that's the same thing that Trump would have done, right? Because if I was Donald Trump and I and I had to make that payment, even if I made it through my organization, it never would have occurred to me that I was making a campaign contribution when I when I when I entered into that arrangement, right? Who would have thought that? Donald Trump did it through a lawyer. I don't think his lawyer said, hey, you got to report this as a campaign contribution, right? So maybe they were wrong. Maybe Trump got bad legal advice and he inadvertently should have reported this donation, right, that he made, because he's the one that wrote the check, right? It's not Stormy Daniels' donation. She didn't donate anything. Now, maybe if she had agreed to be quiet and didn't take a payment, would that have been a donation? Would, you know, would her agreeing not to say something bad, you know, would there be some monetary value you would have to ascribe to that and then claim it as a campaign donation from Stormy Daniels? But it certainly wasn't a donation of hers because she got paid to do it, right? She didn't donate anything. She, she got paid something. So if anything, it was an extra donation from Trump. Now he, you know, he committed or he uh, contributed lots of money to his campaign. So what's an extra 120,000? I mean, it's nothing. What would have been damaging if he had to disclose the nature of that contribution, if that's what it was, because it would have blown you know, the whole thing up because now everybody would have seen that he made the payment. And then what's the point of, of making the payment, right? If you got to tell everybody that, that you did it. But my point is that even if he was mistaken and it should have been reported, this is civil. You know, you don't, this isn't a criminal. They're, they're concocting a crime and they've made it a felony, right? So th- this whole prosecution, in my mind, is illegal. It is politically driven. What about equal protection under the law? Why is Donald Trump being treated differently 
than so many other politicians who have made the same mistake, myself included. Right? If they weren't going to charge me with a crime, they shouldn't be charging Donald Trump with a crime. He didn't do anything worse than I did, uh, even though I don't even remember what I did. But I'm sure if Donald Trump had done what I did, they could have indicted him for that too, right? But it is not a crime. It's a mistake. If anything, it's a civil penalty. What, what are they doing? They're hoping that they can embarrass him. They can prevent Donald Trump from running for office. It doesn't even matter. Even if he's sitting in jail, he could run from office from jail. You know, he, he, you know, and then I guess once he got elected, he could pardon himself and he would get out of jail. But the whole thing is ridiculous that you would try to put him in jail for something like this. And of course, if he was convicted of this felony, that doesn't stop him from running for president. You can be a convicted felon and run for president, right? My dad ran for president, you know, in the Libertarian Party. He didn't get the nomination. Harry Brown got it, but he was an ex-con. You know, he was in for tax evasion, but he could still run for president. And if he had won, which obviously he wasn't going to, but supposedly he could win, right? I mean, whatever. He could serve. The only thing he couldn't do was vote for himself. You know, he used to joke about that. You know, he can run, but he can't vote for himself. And so if Donald Trump were actually convicted of a felony, he couldn't vote for himself for president, but he could run for president. You know, I'm in that same position right now. Not that I'm an ex-felon, but I live in Puerto Rico. And because I live in Puerto Rico, I'm not allowed to vote for president. But I can run for president from Puerto Rico. I can become president as a Puerto Rican resident. I just can't vote for myself, nor can my wife, because she also lives here in Connecticut. So the same situation would apply even if they were able to get a conviction because they find some jury of Trump haters. I mean, imagine that. How is Trump going to find a jury in New York, right? All these guys are like, wait, you know, looking for some excuse to, to arrest them. And this is the crazy part about it. All the things that they wanted to arrest Trump for, right, that they said he did. And this is it. This is all they can come up with. This campaign uh, donation, that's all the district attorney in New York can, can find on Trump was was it a, a campaign finance violation that shows they've got nothing because if they had something better, they would have gone with that instead of this. Uh, but this whole thing makes a mockery of the judicial system. And, and, you know, think about all the crime that's actually going on in, in New York. You think that the prosecutors could focus on real criminals instead of campaign finance violations, which aren't even any of their business. Let the, there's federal laws, you know, that against this, right? They, they can come at, and they didn't want to do it because they know that he didn't do anything wrong. But this guy, I guess he's got some political ambitions, you know, this district attorney, oh, let me, let me dump Donald, let me indict Donald Trump. But it really, to me, undermines the entire judicial process. It's, you know, another uh, just piece to, to show how politicized the justice system has become in the United States, that we don't really have justice, that we're not really a nation of laws the way we're supposed to be. We're a nation of men. And these men apply the laws differently depending on the circumstances. But I hope that this whole thing backfires. You know, I, I, I'm i not a huge Trump supporter. I mean, I, I like some things he did as president. Other things I don't. Um, you know, there are other people I'd rather see as president than Donald Trump, although most of the likely candidates who would get the Republican nominee are probably not going to be any better. In fact, they'd probably be worse than Donald Trump. But 
when I see stuff like this, it just, you know, it makes me, you know, more want to see the guy get reelected just for no other reason than to piss off all these other people that are trying to get him and trying to undermine him. I mean, I know how many people would just be so mad to see Donald Trump back in the White House. And it hasn't been done since Grover Cleveland. He's one of my favorite presidents. If you don't know anything about Grover Cleveland, study him. He's a great American president. But the one you know trivial pursuit, uh, you know, question about Grover Cleveland is so far he's the only American president to serve two non-consecutive terms. <laughs> so if Donald Trump were to get uh, reelected, then there would then be two presidents to uh, have two non-consecutive terms. Donald Trump is already the first president to be indicted for a crime following his presidency. So that's never happened either. So he's already got that as a first. Um, but we'll see if this backfires uh, and, and, and Trump ends up winning. I think it's already helping his poll numbers. You know, I think people are rallying around the president. And, and I think even his opponents in the for the Republican nomination, not that there's even any official race going on yet, but I think everybody is being forced to rally around Trump in the Republican Party which is ultimately going to backfire if the goal of this was to diminish Trump, it would have the opposite effect, which again is pretty much par for the course when it comes to government, right? Because every time they want to do something, they achieve the opposite of what they intend. And so maybe the same thing is going to happen with Donald Trump. Anyway, that's it for today. I want to let everybody know in advance, I'm not going to do another podcast until a week from today. So it's going to be another Saturday podcast probably, you know, a little bit later in the day. And the reason for that is my kids are on spring break. So tomorrow morning we leave for a week, we'll be in St. Bart and we're not going to come back until Saturday afternoon. So I'm going to be away. I'm not really going to be able to do any of these live uh, video podcasts. So I'm just going to wait. I'm not going to do any podcasts while I'm on vacation. Um, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wrap everything up when I get back a week from today. Uh, so uh, take care. Oh, and it, oh no, yeah, it's, Easter will be the day after my podcast. I think Good Friday goes on. Passover is going to start next week as well. So happy Pesach, everybody, if you celebrate that and Good Friday coming up. But I will be back before Easter Sunday to wrap up the week. Bye for now.